Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Rebello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House in London and also from around the world. This week, we sit down with the editor-in-chief of Elle Decoration and hear how our relationships with the home have changed this past year. Everyone became so much more you know, connected to the home and what it represented, how it, how they felt about it. I think, you know, working from home, they were sat around their kitchen tables looking at the kitchen going, oh, well, that's, I don't like that or I want to change this. Or, you know, so I think people just started to look at the home in a completely different light. Plus, we sample some perfect wines for alfresco evenings and long summer days at the beach. With rosé, it's so amazingly uplifting, the colour. It sort of urges you to kind of enjoy that apéro and just feel summery and feel there's a moment of, I don't know, little miniature fete in that moment you drink it. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rovello. So let's begin today's show with Andrew Muller's regular wrap of all the things we know now that we didn't when the week began. We learned this week of a potential heartening omen of a return to something like normal pre-pandemic life. Here in the UK, August is known in media circles as the silly season, with Parliament in recess and everyone important on holiday and sensible news therefore in short supply. Tabloid newspapers in particular have traditionally filled their pages during these hot summer weeks by latching onto stories which, while perhaps not of earth-shattering importance in and of themselves, can be willfully flammed up into sentimental heartstring twangers and or moral panics. For some reason, these often involve competitive donkey rescuing. Yes, well done. Anyway, this week we have learned from Fleet Street's finest of the plight of Geronimo, a Gloucestershire-based alpaca. Is, Is that what an alpaca sounds like? I'll be damned. This is, we should make clear, a genuinely sad story. Geronimo tested positive for bovine tuberculosis some years ago, since when he has been the subject of a legal battle to avert his enforced demise. That struggle has reached a climax amid a chorus of pleas from damp-eyed celebrities, incalculable social media anguish and petitions to the Prime Minister. From which we have learned, and it's almost reassuring, perhaps Geronimo's parting gift to his nation, that even Britain's most serious mastheads remain cheerfully willing to pile in, come August, on such a yarn. The Telegraph. The alpaca that broke a nation's heart. The Times. Geronimo. The death row alpaca. We have not learned, because we simply cannot bring ourselves to look, whether a subsidiary hue and cry is underway regarding the appalling insensitivity of naming Geronimo after the great Apache chief, but it would come as a considerable surprise if there wasn't. Anyway... On the Atlantic's other shore, we learned of a hearteningly brisk assertion of sanity in the face of the demented fantasy nurtured in certain seething quarters. And then they have cans of soup. 
soup. That the 2020 US presidential election was stolen, rigged, fraudulent, whatever. A focus of this nonsense has been Maricopa County in Arizona, where Republican state senators have been undertaking what they claim is an audit of the votes, but which does look rather more like a total waste of everyone's time. And we learned this week that the chairman of Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors, Jack Sellers, himself a Republican, is entirely over it. We learned that he'd sent the GOP senators a letter, key excerpts of which will now be intoned by Monocle's electoral chicanery desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Dear Senators, the board has real work to do and little time to entertain this adventure in Never Never Land. There was no fraud, there wasn't an injection of ballots from Asia, nor was there a satellite that beamed votes into our election equipment. Let's hear it for Chairman Sellers. Back in the UK, we learned that a slice of cake is to go under the hammer. Another occasion risen to magnificently by the sound effects department. By which we mean, obviously, that we learned that being proffered for auction next week is a slice of icing off the wedding cake, well, one of the wedding cakes, dished up in honour of the 1981 betrothal of Prince Charles to the then Lady Diana Spencer. We learned from the entrancingly detailed auction house notes that the slab of confectionery in question is adorned with the royal coat of arms, was originally presented to an employee of the Queen Mother, and has been lovingly, if inexplicably, preserved down the decades in plastic wrap in a cake tin. We learned further that it is expected that some dingbat will pay between three and five hundred quid for this elderly marzipan, though the auctioneers solemnly advise against eating it. And we learned of one of the arguably less tragic casualties of the COVID-19 pandemic, i.e. mildly amusing pretty fly for a white guy hitmakers, The Offspring, who have parted ways with their drummer over his refusal to take a COVID-19 vaccine. We were going to do this whole thing about this, but we learned when we looked into it, conscientious as ever, that everybody had already made the why don't you get a jab joke, so we're not. The wry sidelong look at the news racket. It's the quick and the dead. It really is. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, there. With the Tokyo Olympics coming to a close this weekend, we've asked some of Monaco's international staff to reflect on their favourite Olympic moments from their home nation. First up, Monaco's Emma Searle looks to her home nation of South Africa and to Elena Mayer, who became the first South African athlete to win an Olympic medal in the post-apartheid era. The power of sport to heal old wounds and unify nations is often overstated. As we've seen time and time again, competitive sporting events can sometimes expose the dark underbelly of society and, if anything, deepen divisions. Nevertheless, while the moral persuasion of sport has its limits, when used well, it has the power to unite and create hope in a way that little else does, a fact known all too well by South Africans. Watching this year's Olympics, it's strange to think that the last time Tokyo hosted the Games, back in 1964, 
My country was barred from taking part over its refusal to condemn apartheid and its oppressive system of racial discrimination. South Africa's exclusion from international sport escalated further in the late 1970s when 25 African nations decided to boycott the Montreal Olympics. And we want that everybody in the world know that man is man. In sport, man must be man. It's not a problem of sport only. It's a humanitarian problem. It took 32 years of sporting exile before South Africa was re-invited to the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. Among the athletes wearing green and gold was Alana Mayer. This is Elena Mayor. Her name is spelled M-E-Y-E-R, but it's pronounced M as if it was Mayer, the mayor of a town. She, along with Duratu Tulu of Ethiopia, made her way to the 10,000-meter final. Mayer and Tulu weren't the favorites to win, but after the gun went off, they dominated the field, running shoulder to shoulder, lap after lap, way ahead of the other competitors. to be said for the amount of movement that she could do. After that world championship, she decided... With just two laps to go, Tulu found the strength to kick ahead of Mayer and become the first African woman to win a major Olympic title. Tulu of Ethiopia... First medal for Ethiopia in these games. And then it's going to be Elena Mayor. But the iconic moment was to follow. Tired and jubilant, draped in each other's national flags, their hands locked, Duratu Tulu, a black woman from Ethiopia, and Elana Mayer, a white Afrikaner from South Africa, shared one of the most momentous victory laps in track history. Well, Elana Mayer said that she... Ah, look at that. Even the commentators struggled to keep it together. That iconic image of the two women embracing became a symbol for a new South Africa, one which encompassed Nelson Mandela's vision of a rainbow nation. For Mandela, sport had the power to change the world. His belief was perhaps enshrined while he was jailed on Robben Island, where he spent the majority of his 27-year incarceration. There, he watched other political prisoners play football in the prison yard, a joyful act of defiance. As president, he adopted the same attitude, never more so than in 1995, when he strode into a full stadium at the Rugby World Cup final, wearing the Springbok jersey, which was once a hated symbol of apartheid. Through this sporting gesture, Mandela made it clear that he was a president for all South Africans. As this year's Olympic Games attempts to navigate uncharted territory, perhaps it's helpful to remember Mandela's words, for he understood the power of sport to bring light in the face of despair. The Olympic Games are one of the most powerful instruments to bring about international unity and solidarity to expose young people uh, to challenges which, uh, when they go back to their respective countries, will make them sensitive to those challenges which must be solved in their respective countries. For Monocle 24, I'm Emma Sell. Monocle's Emma Searle there.
Next, we turn to our own Chris Chermak as he looks to one of his home nations, the United States, and back to the year of 2000 when Team USA won gold in baseball for the very first time by defeating Cuba. I've always liked an underdog in sports. Run, Forrest, run! It's part of the reason why, when it comes to the Olympics, you'll find me far more likely to root for the athletes who share my Austrian nationality rather than my American one. My favorite story of these Tokyo Olympics? That would have to be Austrian cyclist Anna Kiesenhofer. Her gold medal in the road cycling event was so unlikely, so audacious, that the Dutch cycling favorite behind her crossed the finish line thinking she had actually won herself. So when it comes to picking iconic Olympic moments from my other half, my American half, I could have easily picked the 1992 basketball dream team of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, Patrick Ewing and Larry Bird. But that would be obvious. Of course the dream team was going to win in 1992. There may have been no bigger favorite in the history of Olympic sports. So instead I'm going to tell you about a different national pastime, one where the United States are something of an underdog in a sport that they claim to dominate. That would be the sport of baseball. America, what's your favorite sport? Baseball. Sandwich. Pie. Apple. And what's your favorite car, America? It's understandable that you would think baseball is a sport that's dominated by the United States. That's partly our own doing, of course. After all, we do officially call the finals of our domestic baseball league the World Series, as if no other country in the world measures up to our own domestic prowess. Or to quote the British comedian Eddie Izzard, America's won the World Series every year? Well done, America. Okay, so maybe we're a little prone to exaggeration. The reality is that baseball is more international than many of us Americans care to admit. It's a testament to the growth of the sport that baseball and softball are back in the Tokyo Olympics for the first time this year since 2008. The United States is going back to the Olympics. The favorites this year? The home country of Japan. This year's Olympic hosts Japan, along with Cuba, are the two biggest names in international baseball competition. Cuba won the first Olympic baseball event in 1992, beating Taiwan in the final. The US came in fourth. Cuba won again in 1996, this time beating Japan in the final. The U.S. took bronze. And it's not just the Olympics. Japan was the winner of the first two World Baseball Classics. That's the baseball equivalent of a World Championships, which was launched in 2006. The U.S. and our vaunted Major League stars? We didn't even reach the semifinals. To be fair, we do also like to shoot ourselves in the foot. While many domestic leagues, including those in Japan and Cuba, are halted to let their best players join the Olympics, North America refuses to do the same and halt Major League Baseball. Remember, they're competing to win the World Series, after all. All of which is why I remember this moment from the Sydney Olympics of 2000 as something of a genuine underdog story. Hey, back in 
This was the sound of the first Team USA victory in Olympic baseball. A 4-0 win in the final over, you guessed it, Cuba. This was a U.S. team made up of a ragtag bunch of amateurs and young upstarts, led by veteran foul-mouthed manager Tommy Lasorda. Hey, Mike! Do the job! Damn it. Son of a... Lasorda was a legend in his own right, who had won two of these coveted World Series titles as manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. But the team he was leading into the Sydney Olympics was nothing of the sort. Sure, some of the players would go on to become stars in their own right, Players like Ben Sheets, who pitched a complete game shutout in the Olympic final against Cuba, and fellow pitcher Roy Oswalt. But at the time, they were plucked from relative obscurity. The players that their professional teams weren't afraid to let go and risk getting hurt in the hunt for a trophy that wasn't the World Series. What's heartening about this story is what it meant to the players and their manager. Tommy Lasorda would later say that winning the Olympic gold was the best moment of his life, that it meant more to him even than his two World Series victories. The Olympics might often play second fiddle to domestic title pursuits in American sports, but the players felt something different. There's something about playing for your country, not as a dream team but as a motley crew of underdogs, that you'll never forget. And at the end of the day, isn't that what the Olympics is all about? For Monocle 24, I'm Chris Turner. Monocle's Chris Chermak. Thank you. Moving away from the Olympics now, but staying with U.S. for our next highlight. For last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers, the show's host, Georgina Godwin, spoke to the American novelist Jessica Anya Blau. Her hit novels have been featured on the Today Show, CNN and NPR, and in Cosmopolitan, Vanity Fair, Bust, Time Out, Oprah Summer Reads, and other national publications. Georgina began by asking Jessica how her own childhood in California inspired her latest book, Mary Jane, and why why she decided to place the novel in 1970s Baltimore. So I went to Baltimore for graduate school and ended up staying there and, uh, you know, raising two daughters there. So before I went to Baltimore, I had read all of Ann Tyler's books and I just, all that had been published up to that time. And I just loved her so much and just thought she was amazing. I just devoured these books. And so all, and I also watched Barry Levinson's films in Diner, which won the Best Picture Academy Award and I'd seen John Waters' films. And these are all these Baltimore people. And so when I went to Baltimore, all I had in my head was Ann Tyler books, like the, just the just the visual of what I had seen in my head. And actually, maybe the, I'm sure the, the movie The Accidental Tourist had come out. And so I'd seen that, seen it also. And I went to Johns Hopkins and sure enough, Johns Hopkins abuts this Ann Tyler neighborhood. And so I moved into this neighborhood. And so suddenly I was living in this world that had been alive to me through books. And it was just, to me, it was like, wow, this, and I was going to the little market where Ann Tyler's characters go. And it was just amazing. And I actually ran into her there. I mean, watched her sign for her account and just stared at her and looked at everything in her cart. Oh, Ann Tyler's buying a baguette. And look, she <laughs> likes artichokes too. You know, I just thought, I was just, you know, I said nothing to her, but I was just, you know, almost shaking. I was so in awe of her. And so when I was writing Mary Jane, I mean, somehow, you know, I was thinking, 19, I wanted to go back to, the book takes place in 1975, but I wanted to go back to pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre-everybody knowing everything via some source where you could sort of hide out. 
and you could hide out. Oh, well, it's something that happened is I met a woman at a party who spent a summer as a summer nanny where a celebrity was hidden in the attic for the whole summer and nobody in the town knew who it was or that this celebrity was there. And with her, it had happened in the 70s. And I thought, well, that could only happen in the 70s or prior to that. Mm. So I liked that setup of somebody in town and nobody knows they're there. So with Mary Jane, I did 1975 and I did a rock star and a movie star and I threw them into this psychiatrist's home. And it just, because I had lived in this neighborhood called Roland Park, which was designed by the Olmsted brothers who designed Central Park in New York, you know, and because of the Ann Tyler novels and because of Barry Levinson films, and there's one John Waters film, Serial Mom, that takes place in this neighborhood. Because of this this sort of rich history in literature in this neighborhood, it just it just felt, I thought, ah, I'm going to do it too. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, a, you know, Ann Tyler is just way better and smarter and greater, but I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to put this book in, in this neighborhood. and And it felt right because I'd lived there and I knew it. You know, and I knew it historically simply from having lived there. Mm. And it's a it's a wonderful story, and I love the fact that it's got this crossover with with so many other strands in in literature, and and that you can feel you know the market because it's it's appeared in in other right. places. Right. Uh, now the protagonist is a fourteen fifteen year old girl. Right. She's fourteen. Yes. Yeah. So she's 14. I mean, it's interesting. One of my daughters read the book and she said, Mom, her name's Mary Jane. And she's the summer nanny for the psychiatrist who's housing the rock star and the movie star. And she said, Mom, it's it's you. I'm just reading you. This is you. Now, of course, this is 1975 in Baltimore. She goes to church. She sings in her choir. She's from this very conservative Christian family. There's a picture of the president on the wall in their dining room, and they say a prayer and thank the president every night or pray for the president. And then she goes down the street to this house where there's, you know, the mother of the home isn't wearing a bra or nipples are showing, and there's records playing, and the psychiatrist has these goatee sideburns, and the kid is walking around naked, and there's a rock star and a movie star, and it's just, and the house is a mess, and it's chaos, and there's rotting food in the refrigerator. You pull out a vegetable, and it's like sitting in some kind of black soup because it's <laughs> been sitting there so long. And so, you know, so it obviously isn't my life. I was in Southern California living in that chaos, barefoot, going to the beach, riding my bike to the beach. But the fact is, internally, it's entirely me. And it's almost like, I mean, like I said, I was happy and in, in, in our chaotic house. But I loved my friends' organized houses. And my best friend, Debbie Kilb, her mother would write out the menu for the month and put it on the refrigerator. And you could see the main course, the two side dishes, and the desserts every night for the month. And I just would love going to her house. I mean, my house was had the black vegetable in the refrigerator and the really stinky cheese that my sister would dare me to smell. She'd be like, I'll pay you a dollar if you smell mom's cheese. So first we had to find the cheese because you have to like unwrap all these tin foils and balls and everything's moldy and black. And then you find the cheese and then she'd be like, just sniff it. I'll pay you a dollar and sniff the stinkiest cheese. I mean, so I went, you know, but so then I'd go to Debbie Kilb's house and it was just like, clean and the floor was swept and there's no noise and there's this beautiful menu for the month and I would take it down and I would just stare at it and I would read the whole thing and every day I was there after school and I would read okay what are they having tonight and I'd be like meatloaf succotash you know iceberg lettuce wedge and sherbet or so you know it was just like (laughs) this menu and it was so great so I sort of put I put Mary Jane in that house, which would have been a fantasy for me to live in that house, you know, I would have loved that order. Mm. 
But I made the family not like the Kilps were wonderful, wonderful people. But I made the family just harsher and, you know, more conservative and more sort of stringent. And so I put her in that. And then I had her walk down the street to sort of the house I grew up in. So I kind of I straddled these two worlds that are two worlds that I straddled. The American novelist Jessica Anya Blau in conversation with Monaco's Georgina Godwin for last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. Still to come here on The Curator, we meet the co-founders of a personal care brand making soap and body wash in the solvable packaging. We sit down with the editor-in-chief of El Decuration and Bottoms Up. We sample some perfect wines for those long summer days. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rubello. Packaging is something consumer goods companies spend a lot of time and effort working on. These days, aimed mostly at sustainability. For shipping goods, packaging needs to be efficient but minimal, and preferably even compostable. And for household and beauty products, packaging needs to be not only sharp and functional, but preferably made of recycled materials. But what about zero-waste packaging that simply disappears with no trace? Well, that was the idea behind PLUS, a company responsible for a line of body wash in packaging that dissolves in the shower. It was created by friends Catherine Woodruff and Julie Schott, who is also a former beauty editor at Elle. The pair spoke to Daniel Bage for this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs. The thing about PLUS is it's a problem that I've known about and we've all known about and observed like anecdotally for years, for as long as I've interacted with personal care products. I've observed the excess and only just sort of in the building out of plus realized that there's statistics to back up that observation. Like personal care does contribute a disproportionate amount of waste to landfills. Personal care is really in the lead on just creating trash. So I started my career in beauty and wellness as a beauty editor. And it was during a time where the sustainability conversation had really not hit the mainstream. It wasn't a priority. It wasn't a messaging that anyone led with when they're launching a brand or a product or anything like that. It was still very much siloed in the sustainability community because we're talking about five, 10 years ago. And I think brands were looking to stand out by leading with excess. There was elaborate packaging. There wasn't attention to what happens to the packaging after the big wow moment. And I used to just complain about it a lot and it didn't have any solution because it's an overwhelming problem. I think a lot of people feel that way. Overwhelmed by figuring out how to recycle or dispose of waste because it's still, it's not that clear. I mean, there's different rules depending on where you live. So when our other co-founder who's not with us today, Brian, and I set out to bring this to life. It was important that we found somebody who understood the mission and the mission of reducing single-use plastics and waste in the personal care industry. And Catherine, who was a friend of ours, was just not afraid of that challenge when other people had said, this is overwhelming and daunting. Um, And Catherine had come from 
a real behavior changing business. And this just felt like a really clear next challenge for her in her career. So, and this was like during the pandemic, during lockdowns in the U.S. So we put all this together, built this team remotely. So making these huge decisions and commitments over the phone was just normal to us. And that's kind of how we got here. Very well said. You know, the pandemic did drag on for a while and it seems like it uh, has been so long, but to come together and launch a product in, in what is actually quite a short time is, is very impressive. So Catherine, talk to me a little bit about what Julie alluded to there, your background in coming to this. Why were you interested in in sort of launching your own venture? And I know that you've worked in communications and, and marketing as well. So just talk to me about the positioning of that and why you were so excited to join this team. Yeah. So my background is actually not at all in the personal care space. I was an early team member at a company called Bonza, which is a chickpea pasta company, sort of helped get that off the ground and build marketing and communications there from the ground up. And for us, I think why I got so excited about Julie and Brian's vision for Plus was this idea of changing behavior in a way that can be scary and is intimidating to a lot of people and is challenging, right? Is we're used to either bar soap or liquid body wash. And that's what we've always done. It comes in a plastic bottle. It sits in our shower. We've used it the same way for forever. And this idea of, you know, when I was at Bonza, it was about trading people up from regular pasta to a healthier alternative chickpea pasta. And in the case of Plus, how can we give people a better option, something that's better for the planet, but that doesn't make them feel like they have to make a sacrifice or be guilted into it? So I think Julie and Brian's real expertise in inspiring people to make these shifts through a really novel product and something that is engaging and that you want to be a part of, that was really important to me. So in my personal life, really passionate about sustainability and how I can always be making better choices and being a better customer and citizen of the planet. And so to do that, to be able to find a way to do that in a way that's engaging and magical and kind of just fun and, and engaging with the, the packaging and the form factor, that was really exciting to me. Once we had the, the vision and the idea for this product, we brought on scientists and engineers with PhDs in material science to help us figure out, okay, we have this vision for a dehydrated body wash that roughly feels and looks like a you know foamy square. How can we get there? And so we worked with just really smart partners who helped us create that format in with ingredients and moisturizing, aloe leaf and, and other things that we felt strongly about on the formulation side into a more eco format. So that came with challenges and lots of rounds of revisions, but we did move really quickly to bring that to life over the past year. Julie, just on the brand and uh, sort of positioning side, I like what Catherine alluded to there in building something that people would want to be a part of. You at L will have seen, and the other uh, publications you've worked with will have seen every and all brands that are out there. Talk to me about what you wanted to portray. And uh, I'm curious about if your other brand plays into this as well, Starface, it's quite a simple sort of proposition, but it's fun and lighthearted. Talk to me about why you wanted that to be a part of, of this as well. So the thing with Plus is that the product itself, each time you use it, sort of undergoes a transformation. For those who haven't tried it, the body wash comes in a dehydrated 
foam square that's housed in a dissolvable wood pulp sachet, and that's a mouthful. You rip open the sachet with dry hands, with relatively dry hands in the shower, and then you can let it dissolve in your hand or you can just drop it on the floor and it dissolves in under 60 seconds, I would say. And then with the square itself, you want to sort of go from this tiny dehydrated square that people on TikTok like to compare to cheese and just turn it into a big foamy lather, particularly if you use it with a washcloth or a loofah or something like that. So there's like, all of these magical steps. And that's an unusual experience in your shower and in the personal care world where we have these like very familiar form factors. And that was just super important because like back to, you know, Catherine's experience with behavior changing and, you know, ours at Starface, like there needs to be something compelling about the experience to make you want to make a change. It needs to be incentivized in some way. And we think fun and joy are enough. If you enjoy doing something more than the way you did it before, you're going to keep doing it. It's just rewarding. And I think it was super fun with Plus because scent is a huge part of the experience and scent is so addictive and it's so sort of like habit forming. And it's really cool that we have the ability to create scent stories with this product and there's a lot more to come there. I think there's just a really, really unique opportunity to create like a lasting relationship with the user. Catherine Woodruff and Julie Schott there, the co-founders of Plus. And you can hear the full interview on this week's episode of The Entrepreneurs. Just head over to monocle.com forward slash radio. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Rubello. Now, on this week's edition of Monocle on Design, we visit London's Design Museum for an exhibition focusing on the life and work of the French modernist architect and designer Charlotte Perriand. Overlooked in her lifetime, the showcase demonstrates the breadth of her output and work in architecture too. In this highlight, Justin McGurk, chief curator at the Design Museum, speaks to Monocle's Maylee Evans. Charlotte Perriand was one of the great designers of the 20th century and we're exploring her career and her legacy. My name is Justin McGurk and I'm the chief curator at the Design Museum. She was a pioneer of modern furniture, a pioneer of open plan living, a pioneer of modular furnishings, really one of the first interior architects, a design legend. It feels like the right time to celebrate her work because there's been a lot of new scholarship that has revealed a lot of what she's done that was perhaps previously underappreciated. She worked in a world that was dominated by uh, male architects and she really stands out as uh, one of the greats, if not the great woman designer of the 20th century in in, in a very small field. It's very timely because so many of the issues she's thinking about are connected to the way we live now. She helps define the modern interior. The exhibition really tells the story of her career, and it was a long career. You know, it really spanned the 20th century. 
And it begins in the 1920s um, in a section that we're calling the machine age because she was a real advocate of industrial materials and processes. She wanted to design modern furniture made of tubular steel. She wanted to sweep away the old bourgeois idea of the home as a place with dark hand-carved wooden furniture and full of clutter. So for her it was all about glass and steel, shiny surfaces and light and open spaces. And she really was that, the quintessential modern woman who wore ball bearings as a necklace around her neck. And that takes us to the mid-1930s when she's working for Le Corbusier. We enter a different section called Nature and the Synthesis of the Arts, in which she's really finding a new voice and she's turning away from metal and industrialization and rediscovering nature and the sculptural properties of wood. Through the 30s, she's really discovering a new warmth in the interior and then effectively settles somewhere between the two and her most famous furniture is really incorporating industrial sheet metal with hand-carved wood, you know, in her famous bookcases, for instance. And in this mid-period, she really arrives at this vision of the home, which is a synthesis of architecture, design, and art. Une définition du mot art, c'est l'application plus ou moins des connaissances nouvelles à des objets usuels quelconques. And I think this is why she was such a great collaborator. She really saw design as connected to architecture and art on an equal plane. And she never thought about the furniture as this kind of standalone thing that you could put anywhere. She was always thinking about the architecture and the interiors in which the furniture worked. That was really her genius. I mean, she was thinking about the harmony of the interior and she finds this position which balances the industrial and the craft and craftsmanship, metal and wood, the very urbane with actually the quite rustic. Um, and this is a, it's, it's quite a unique vision. I think it's become clear more recently just how important Charlotte Perriot was. She's getting a lot of credit now, partly because she was somewhat overshadowed, at least in design history terms, by some of her male peers and collaborators, people like the great modernist architect Le Corbusier, uh, even his partner Jean-Pierre Jeanneret, the designer and engineer Jean Prouvé, who was much more famous in Perignon for a long time and and much more expensive in, in, in auction houses and so on. Even her artist friends like Fernand Léger. And she was at the center of an extraordinary world of modernist architects and designers. And, you know, I don't think she ever felt overshadowed because she was such a strong and dynamic and, you know, independent person. But um, the history books possibly didn't give her the credit that she was due. Thanks to Justin McGurk, the chief curator at the Design Museum there. He was speaking to our own Maylee Evans. The exhibition Charlotte Perrien, The Modern Life, is on at London's Design Museum until the 5th of September.
Up next, a look back to last weekend's edition of The Stack. For last Saturday's episode, the show's host, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, decided to feature one of the sunniest design titles out there, L Decoration, which besides its monthly issues have incredible special editions, such as L Decoration Country. With more on the title and a little preview of their upcoming September issue, Fernando was joined by the magazine's editor-in-chief, Ben Spriggs. Here's a highlight. Well, decoration's very much about an emotional connection to the home, and that involves obviously design and interiors, but it's, it's, it's how it kind of the, what's the context of where we live and how we react to it. How long have you been working at Derben? Um, I've been here for it's, I've been there for about six years on this stint. I had a break before that, and I did probably about three or four years prior to that as well. I had a bit of time at the Sunday Times on the Style magazine there as well. So, yes, I've always had an affinity with El Decoration, and I love, love the title. And correct me if I'm wrong, but of course, since the pandemic started last mm. year, very difficult times, even for, uh, for our industry as well. But I feel the magazines like yours that deal with home, I think they became more important than ever. I became more of a consumer of those type of magazines for some reason. Mm. Absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of us have always had a connection to, you know, interiors in the home. But with the pandemic, with everyone having literally been forced to stay at home the whole time, everyone became so much more you know, connected to the home and what it represented, how it, how they felt about it. I think, you know, working from home, they were sat around their kitchen tables, looking at the kitchen going, oh, well, that's, I don't like that, or I want to change this. Or, and so I think people just started to look at the home in a completely different light. And I think that's continuing, obviously, returning to the office is not a, you know, a big thing, I don't think yet. So I think it's definitely something that's changed completely. And tell me about the extra editions of our decoration. Mm. I think there's such a nice compliment to the main title. Mm. And there, there are quite a few of them I have in front of me. I bought yes. a little bit earlier in the month, L Decoration Country, which, I mean, magnificent houses there yes. as well. So it's good to drink a little bit as absolutely. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the big thing about L Decoration, you know, the, the main magazine is very much focused on urban environments, urban living. So we've always, you know, I think about seven years ago, we wanted to kind of do another title that represented the same aesthetic, but in more kind of rural, coastal, different locations around the world that weren't necessarily urban. And therefore, we decided to come up with this idea of El Decoration Country. And it has very much the same values and the same kind of aesthetic in the homes that we feature in that, but they're in a more kind of, you know, different location. And I'm very curious about those things. I mean, Air Decoration, does it have other international editions as well, yes, right? So, Do you work closely together mm, with those other editors? How does it work, this kind of sharing content? Yeah, we do a little bit of sharing. So it's an amazing network. We The the brand is actually owned by Lagardère, which is a French-owned media brand, uh, media company, sorry. And we, I think at last count, I think it was 26 global editions. Wow. So it's it's really kind of diverse and really varied. And each of them are very different and they represent their local markets perfectly, which is it's interesting when you look at them because they are very different. We have an international conference once a year, usually during Salone in Milan. Obviously, that's been tricky this last couple of years. But we do have an ongoing dialogue between myself and the other editors-in-chief around the world. And... There is, yeah, it's interesting to kind of see what they're kind of seeing as trends, what they're kind of in their markets is current and um, happening within our market. 
What about uh, I was asking you about, for example, L? Is there any connection? Because I think they're quite mm. two very different titles as yeah. well. I'm, su- I'm sure you can read both, of course. Mm. But tell me, do you think? Yeah, very different. I think you know. Essentially, we always call L Decoration the style magazine for the home. So it it has its it has its roots in the fashion heritage of the L brand. But we launched in the UK in 1989, so it's over 30 years old now. So in that time, we've very much developed our own identity away from the L brand and now we have a, quite a different audience, quite a different demographic. But we still have that kind of, you know, that fashion sensibility and that style sensibility in the way we tackle home and how people react to it. And I'm going to ask a question. I think mm. I might know the answer, but uh, I believe the brand very much believes in print still because mm. and I say this because you don't not only have the monthly title, but those extra titles that you don't mm. see that with other kind of design publications no, as totally. well. It must be a lot of work as well, but I, I'm, I'm mm. sure there's a market for it. People want to read that. Yes, I think El Decoration's always had that thing that people people collect it, people mm. kind of keep it, people refer back to it. You know, our digital editions are increasing in popularity. Our website is becoming more and more kind of referred to but um, but the print is very much the heart of the brand um, and so it's yes it's it's very key you know L decoration is it's almost like a you know people use it as a kind of a description you know they use it as a um, as a way to kind of refer to an aesthetic you know it's something looks very L decoration and so it's it's got such a kind of strong place in people's heart I think And and I think the covers are very appealing as well. I have the August uh, edition in front of me, mm-hmm. uh, the art special. Again, I love the design bits, mm. kind of the orange with yellow. I think it's quite uh, summery. Mm. And I have to say, I mean, it's an August edition, but it, it feels quite full, full of pages yes. as well. I think that's quite impressive, mm-hmm. I must add. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I think it's been interesting. You know, we've done well during... The pandemic, I think, as we were talking about, people are so into their home and doing projects. And so we've managed to maintain... The pagination, we've managed to maintain the number of issues. So we've kept that kind of going throughout that period, which has been great. And yeah, the, the design is, is so key and it has to be kind of engaging. And it has to, we have, I have a great creative director who we work very closely on the covers and, and how it speaks to people. Ben, I wonder if you could give us a little preview of the September uh, edition. And, yes. and by the way, this for design, I think the mm. September edition is also quite important, yeah, right? Absolutely. Very much like the fashion kind of idea. September issue is big. It's that kind of, you know, you're coming out of the summer. Mm. Everyone's back to work, a bit more focused. It's it's a really important time of the year. And yeah, so September for us. So our theme is very much, it's kind of, it's time for calm. I think, again, We have a connection to what's going on in the wider world. And so I think there's this, still this idea of people are still a bit anxious coming out of the pandemic. You know, obviously in the UK, things are still slightly up in the air. So it's looking at, yes, okay, things may be opening up. You know, our social lives may be kind of reigniting, but home is still important. And this whole idea of people will still be having that renewed kind of refound love for the home and so and why it's so important so we're doing that we obviously will also focus on london design festival kind of coming up at the end of september and yeah lots of kind of talk about and, and new seasons products and and we've got a great shoot that's been done by elisa Rossino out in italy and that's all about curvy kind of very kind of furniture that gives you a hug which is kind of again this positive feel El Decorations Editor-in-Chief Ben Spriggs in conversation with Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco for last Saturday's edition of The Stack.
Let's continue with the summary vibes now as we look back on this week's installment of Food Neighborhoods. For the latest episode, the food writer Olivia Takires shares a recipe for an easy Greek starter, which is sure to impress your dinner guests. Hi, I'm Olivia Takiris. I am author of Sea Salt and Honey. We are cooking feta wrapped in phyllo with sesame and honey today. I chose this recipe as it's an easy, delicious recipe that will be sure to impress anyone you make it for. What you need, two sheets of phyllo dough, extra virgin olive oil, four ounces of feta cheese. We wanna cut that in half so you have a nice rectangular block honey, white sesame seeds, and black sesame seeds. Preheat the oven to 350 degrees or 175 Celsius. We want to roll out the phyllo dough, use olive oil to brush over the sheet, place the feta piece at the bottom of the phyllo dough. We will then roll the feta up all the way to the end of the phyllo, fold over the sides. For good measure, we're gonna do this once more so the feta doesn't ooze out of the sides. And a pro tip, before you wrap the feta, put a paper towel around the feta cheese so it soaks up any moisture. We don't wanna have the moisture making the phyllo soggy. We want the olive oil to do its job and make it nice and crispy. So before you roll the second phyllo dough, brush that sheet with olive oil as well. Rewrap the packet and fold it up like a little envelope. Then we place the packet of cheese in a baking dish, brush the top with some additional olive oil. We bake it for 20 minutes or until the dough is lightly golden brown. We remove it from the oven, transfer it to your serving plate. We drizzle the top with lots of honey, sesame seeds, get messy with it, have fun. And then you let it cool before you serve. If you cut into it too early, you may burn your tongue, which is something my sister always does, so be careful. The food writer Olivia Takires for this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. Our final highlight is something that would go perfectly with a Greek starter just shared by Olivia. Of course, I'm talking about wine. As for the latest edition of Confect Corner, the team set out to celebrate the summer. So it's only appropriate that hosts Sophie Grove, Marcella Palak and Gillian Tobias sampled some summer rosé to get us inspired for alfresco evenings and long days at the beach. If you can hear the clinking of wine bottles in the background, that's because they were joined in Zurich by Confect's wine writer, Chandra Kurt, who arrived armed with enough rosé to see them through until autumn. With rosé, it's so amazingly uplifting, the colour. It sort of urges you to kind of enjoy that apéro and just feel summery and feel there's a moment of, I don't know, little miniature fete in that moment you drink it. It's funny because it is just the colour of the wine, but it has the connotations of a little bit more joyful than maybe a red or a white. And summer, I think your first rosé, it is the premiere to summer. You, you know, <laughs> regardless of the weather, it's like suddenly the season is upon us and it's like, oh, let's go have a rosé. The good thing is it's also holidays. And what are we in this time? We are more relaxed. Everything, you know, looks a little bit rosé. So we are not upset. We are more quiet. And I think the wine is really the ambassador for these leisurely moments that we don't have so many sorrows. 
And it is like the rose-tinted glasses. Everything looks better and feels better after a bottle of rosé. <laughs> Even having it in the studio is cheering me up. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear. We move now to the Swiss one. We have even a wine from Switzerland, which is the Eau de Perdri. It's a terminology for Swiss rosé wine done out of Pinot Noir. And it's from Chateau d'Auvergne. It's a 400 years old estate. And Sophie and Gillian, we have to go there one time. It's a really beautiful castle. Next time you're here and the family cooks very well and they will welcome us with open arms. So the smell here, if I might take the lead, it's a little bit more... Um, like strawberries washed into a little bit liquid honey. So it's a little bit, you have this sweet, sweet fruit. I love that description. I strawberries washed in honey. Mm. What is the difference between the process of making red wine and white wine? Where does, you know, are they pink grapes <laughs> that you make rosé wine? Excuse my ignorance. <laughs> no, no, it's back to the basics here. One, one thing is, as a seasoned rosé drinker, <laughs> In Japan, there are, I think, pink grapes, but, um, you know, like the color lays in the skin. So you do rosé 99% from red wine grapes. There are two major, major ways to do it is like when you press the grapes, you know, because if you cut the grape inside, the flesh is white. So you let it with the skin, not too long, and then the juice will have a gentle color. And this is more the Rosé de Provence style, like the first two wines that we have. And then the next two styles, in a way, the Eau de Pedri and the, the last one that we will taste, you, you press it and you let it much longer macerate, you call this maceration, the juice and the skin, and this gives this darker style of rosé. But usually it's very difficult to do because you have to be careful not to let it too long, otherwise the colour will not be the one you want. I remember from my time in France that champagne, well, rosé champagne, is made by mixing a little bit of red You wine. see, you just touched the exception here, and this is absolutely the case. That they Officially, you know, most of the region don't allow to mix red and white wine grapes, but in the champagne it's common, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. So Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier are red grapes and Chardonnay is white. And there you mix the two um, grapes. But we can also mix all of them and it's still a white wine. So it's all about how long the skin contact and the juice are managed. So our final wine feels like it's pushing the boundaries of rosé because it's so much darker than the others. It's almost a kind of cherry red, but not quite. It's sort of dancing on the line. No, so this is also the grape. It's Teroldego, which is a red wine grape, a very dark grape. And it's also a natural wine. It's done by Elisabetta Foradori, which is really a very good wine producer in North Italy. She really lets the... The skin contact pretty long, so you see that if you compare the first to the fourth, I mean, it's like two different worlds of wine. It's and if I taste this one, should, it should be actually the strongest from all of, of the four. Ooh, yeah. Natural wine, it, it sometimes has a... It feels a tiny little bit acidic on the nose, for my taste, but... You have here these red cherries, I, w- I would say a lot of red cherries and plums, and when it's in the palate, you have an additional element which are on the tongue a little bit dry, but this makes it a good wine to pair with food because you, you have a structure. But I was wondering one, about that. What food would you pair with this? I will even dare to roast lamb chops on the grill and eat it or something with aubergine, which is mm. stronger in taste, or mushrooms. You grill some mushrooms mm. and this will fit wonderfully. I'm sort of thinking Lebanese food would go Exactly. Well this, Very good. So. But actually, Chandra, you really inspired me to drink rosé with food because before I saw it always as a drink, you know, maybe pre-dinner and on a terrace kind of 
moment. And actually, having spoken and spent time with you, I've, I've realized that it's a great dinner wine, table wine. Absolutely. You know, in general, I think one, two glasses maybe as opera, but usually when you enjoy wine, you should eat something. And, and I think rosé really is a serious wine also for dinners. So do you think that the reputation of rosé has completely been transformed in the last few years by some of the producers we have at this table and your table in Zurich? Completely changed, of course not, because you will always have the hardcore wine lovers that only drink the vintage and the soil and the price and the limitation. And they will always have a little smile when they see rosé because it's a different kind of wine enjoyment. But I think today we have so many representable, beautiful examples like the four we had here, for example, that you will gain more newcomers also that find the way to wine via the rosé wines. And I think this is very beautiful. Marcella, let me ask you, which was your favourite wine today? Today is raining, so the, the last one, the Lesere, would be probably the best one to have something more, a deeper kind of wine. And the Whispering Angel for a hot, hot summer day. But let me ask something, Chandra. I see people always putting tons of ice cubes to their rosés. Does this kill the taste? It dilutes it. It makes it a little bit more watery, if I may say so, and it makes it lighter. But, for example, when you are in the Provence, where Whispering Angel is from, and it's so hot and you sit on the beach, the wine gets immediately warm. And I saw it even there that they put ice in the glasses at lunch when they drink their glass of wine. So one part of me say no, one part of me say yes, it dilutes it. So usually when you have a stronger, like the last one, you have a more taste, it's a stronger taste. When you put some ice, it doesn't disturb so much. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Carlotta Rubello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. Thank you for listening. <laughs>